This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You might remember it was just a while back, a few days ago, we were talking to uh, Carol Todd, the mother of Amanda Todd. Uh, Of course, uh, a situation happening with uh, the alleged, uh, well, I get the the man who is, uh, I guess, charged with, I'm not guessing, he is charged with child pornography, extortion, internet luring, criminal harassment, and distribution of child uh, pornography in relation to the Amanda Todd case. He was sentenced... Uh, just last week, nearly 11 years in prison for online fraud and blackmail of 34 other young men and women. Uh, Amanda Todd, unfortunately, getting caught in this net. The big question is, after this conviction in the Netherlands, what are the chances of getting uh, this person from the Netherlands to Canada in order to stand trial Uh in the in the Amanda Todd case to talk more about all of this Carol Todd is with his mother Amanda Todd and she is on the line with us now hello Carol how are you today I am doing as fine as can be expected happy birthday thank you so uh, what was your reaction when you heard the news um, actually I was I was kind of you know it was a whole different thing when we're talking about the other trial which that was you know, we had a conversation. Mm-hmm. And then to realize that this is, we're talking about Amanda's trial now. Mm. And and it brings other emotions. And, and you always think of the cup that's half full or half empty. What if? What if they don't send him here? Well, what, what if that, you know, it all falls apart? And then, so when I picked up my phone, before I even saw any news articles, all I saw was great news, congratulations. And so um, just dug a little deeper. And this is 3.30 a.m., my time, right? Oh, my. And then, and, then, and then found out that he had been approved for extradition. And so that just started, got, got my adrenaline going a little and um, went and dug a little deeper. And it was actually, because of the nine-hour time difference in Amsterdam and the Netherlands, they're their news has come out, right? Mm-hmm. So they were able to, so people I know there were able to send me article links, and then I just translated them into English, and that's when I read and found out about more in detail. So uh, the from the people that you have talked to, what is the chance of this actually happening? Is this just a matter of time now? Well, you know what? I remember back two years ago, or April of 2014, and and, and the discussion, do you think he'll get extradited? And so many people said, nah, no, it'll never happen. He'll never come here, right? And, and look where we are now. Yeah. And so we've, we've gone through so many. We've, we've been through a trial of his other victims. He's been convicted of that, found guilty. Um, we've gone through the hoops of our Canada justice system, our minister signing off on an extradition um, application. Now we've had the lower courts and the and the higher courts approve it in the Netherlands. We're just waiting for the justice minister in the Netherlands. So, you know what, there was a lot of negative thoughts back then of it would never happen, but we're that much closer. And so I can say that, yes, I, I truly hope that it will happen here and that all the ducks are in order and... Um, he will be found guilty, I hope. What does it say to you, Carol, over and above, and I don't know if you can pull yourself above all of this and, and, and the impact that this case has made with laws around the world. You were talking about how, nah, this is never going to happen. We're never going to uh, 
get an extradition. I mean, after all, remember how poor Amanda got to where she was. So what's, what's the chance of this happening? And now look at what's happening. Does that register with you on how much... Uh, your daughter's case has resonated with people. This has literally changed the way people view this now. In a variety of different ways and, and different issues and different causes because there is that, you know, that that cyberbullying, bullying, online, offline, young people, older people. There's the cyber intimidation, cyber victimization. There's the mental health piece. I'm, I'm actually, I was at a mental health conference yesterday and and talking a bit about Amanda and talking about the things that we see in the school system and in post secondary and and things like that and and someone you know said to me that was sitting next to me and says well look what the discussion was 5 or 6 years ago and and it's far more far reaching when we talk about mental health, when we talk about internet safety, when we talk about what's happening in schools and, you know, social emotional stuff and, and depression and, and now there's, you know, integrated health centers being created for youth and for older people. There's online safety that, you know, some of our telecoms are working on. It's, it's just exploded and it's grown. And I just read a report that came out two weeks ago from the status of women, um, House of Commons Committee on Gender-Based Violence. And um, when I look at the footnotes and I see all the big names of organizations that are putting their input into these things, and then I see my name as a footnote too, and Amanda's legacy, it, it, it shows you that there are conversations going on. There's discussions going on. And people are listening and doing things. The conversations around mental health, cyber safety, um, online safety, families, and, and even, you know, respect and all that. It, it wasn't as loud as it was um, a few years ago. Mm. And I'd like, to, I'd like to think that Amanda played a bit, uh, you know, some part in that, her legacy. It, it's just... Carol, she played a massive part in this. <laughs> after we, after we had the discussion uh, on the show, uh, we were talking about it at home. I have a 14-year-old daughter. She, of course, had seen the video before. I played it for my wife for the first time, and yeah. you can imagine what that was like. Uh, and we had the discussion in the house, uh, e- even after my daughter had seen it, you know, a, a couple of years before. Uh, so, you know, you think of this, the Retea Parsons case. I mean, those have all done so much. Uh, yeah. You know, it's so unfortunate that that you paid the price that you did for this. But my goodness, um, your daughter has done so much to help people with that video. It, it's and, and you know what? I, I've just realized that this is proof right here that something that you thought would never happen is probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you know what? One of my fears are is is that um, so when all this is done. Will Amanda and her legacy just be buried away and not talked about anymore? I don't think that will ever happen. I really I don't. don't I really don't think that. As long as there is the internet, I think kids are discovering this video every single day. I think parents are discovering this video every single day. So, you know, kudos to you and and all the work that you've done and all you and all the advocacy that you've done uh, to push this forward. But boy, I, I think this. You know, I, I'm sure you're waiting for it all to come to a head there in in BC. But boy, oh boy, you're pretty much there. It like you've made huge strains, huge gains here. 
Well, the conversation is still there, right? Yeah. And, and that's and that's what's important. Where you went home and you showed it to your wife and and your fourteen year old. And but there's other things like there's other documentaries. There's that conversation. Exactly. And hopefully that Amanda story does doesn't keep cu- coming up because there's another tragic story like hers. We don't want it to. We want it to be part of that, your kid coming home and saying, in school today, we learned about, you know, cyber safety and and stuff. And we watched that video of that girl with the flip card. That's okay, right? Absolutely. We don't want any more Mm. horrible stories to have to remember. Although there's a, there was an infographic that I just saw and it said that kids learn and remember better when um, there's a realist story, real mm. story attached to something that they have to learn about. Congratulations, Carol. Uh, this is a big day. Uh, Carol Todd, mother of Amanda Todd, has been with us. Have yourself a great birthday. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. And now, look at this. My goodness, Billy Crystal. How does this happen? Are you sure we got the right show here? I think somebody else has stolen our show and left us with a really good one. Uh, award-winning comedian, actor, producer, and director Billy Crystal going to be at Niagara Falls, Falls View Casino coming up April 12th and 13th with Bonnie Hunt. Uh, and Billy Crystal is with us now. Hello, Billy. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks. Yeah, we've been out on tour since January. And um, these are like our last seven dates for this phase of the tour, and we've been having a fantastic time, so you we must have a week off, which we needed, and um, recouping, and then we'll be out there your way next week. So what's it like to be back out on the road again? Uh, compare audiences today with what's going on, and especially in your country, with, with the days that you started. How does the audience change? You know what? I, they're just a little older. <laughs> <laughs> they're great. It's been so invigorating. And and one of the reasons I I really wanted to do this tour here, I did it in Australia over the summer, um, in creating this kind of evening. Um, I missed I missed being in front of people. I miss being on a regular basis. Um, I I'm one of those guys who loves being on the road because I never had my own room. <laughs> <laughs> so so it comes with perks nowadays, is what you're telling us. Yeah, well, you know, my brother and I lived in the same room till I was 20, and then I went to college and I had roommates, and then and then I got married. So I've never had my own room. So I get in the road. I I, I can turn up the music loud. I can watch what I want. It's not bad. When did um, you know you wanted but, to? But, d- sorry, go ahead. No, I just love the the, the reaction to the show and to being in. Uh, Audiences seeing me in person and, and me being with them, um, you know, it has just been just really fantastic. It's just been so energizing and, and back to what I always started out wanting to be, which was a comedian. When did you know you wanted to be a comedian? Uh, very young, um, really five, six. It was very natural for me to get up in front of the family or, you know, the family and even school plays and I'd improvise even then. I, I, I was sort of fearless in doing that. And and then growing up, you know, in the 50s with the great comedians that were on television, Burns and Allen, Phil Silvers, um, the, the Honeymooners, Ernie Kovacs, um, the great Steve Allen show, um, Sunday Nights was Ed Sullivan with all kinds of great stand-up comics, um, and, uh, and obviously Sid Caesar, and then... The great comedy albums, the two thousand year old man and Jonathan mm-hmm. Winters, and 
So it, it was always about, for me, it was either the Yankees or, or making something funny. And, uh, um, and, and so uh, I think I made the right choice. Uh, but, ever nervous before a gig? Were you ever nervous before playing? You said you were a natural at this. Yeah, I mean, a little bit of nerves is a good thing. Um, this show, I can't wait to get out there every night. Uh, it's been, because it, it's so different. So with Bonnie, who's a great interviewer, a Second City veteran, had her own talk show, um, and very funny and a terrific actress. On top of that, she's so um, she's so terrific and at ease um, with me and with the audience that it feels like a... a it's a stand-up show, basically, that I, I sit down occasionally. So it, it, she leads me into all different kinds of things, and so the the show is always different. It's always spontaneous, and um, it's very informal. I, you know, we've done, like, little focus groups after the shows, and people love this the way that we do the show. It's because it's different, and it's when it's not funny, it's always interesting. It's always a... Uh, it's a it's a very informal night and and so is it a bit of stand up and sit down? Yeah, it's it's basically a talk show, but I'm on my feet constantly and <clears throat> the stories that I talk about become performance pieces. So in that way, it's it's the it's the best of both worlds. Uh, you are always great and are always great whenever you do any of the late night shows. Talk about no, that okay. a little bit and, and 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 compare the new crop to the old crop. Well. Um, for me, and getting back to the show, my favorite times on TV recently were, and I'm talking about like the last 10 years, um, were Letterman shots. Mm. Dave and I had a great rapport together, um, and I loved just going off. And we never did notes, and it was just like I would just go, and he trusted me. This show was like a two-hour Letterman shot to me. It's that spontaneous. Dave was fantastic to perform with, um, and and um, and so was Jay, um, and Johnny was uh, the king of all of them, um, and a little more nerve wracking because I wasn't as ready at that point in my career as I was, you know, later. When you're a new guy and you suddenly you grew up watching Johnny Carson, and suddenly you're sitting next to him, hmm. it, it was awesome. Um, he was like the first superstar comedian I just ever saw up close and I I, I I was almost distracted on the first time I did the show he called me over to sit down next to him which was a rare event and in a commercial break I uh, was like I, I just I kept looking at him because I was like two feet from the giant of giants and he just looked at me and and I just went how's it going and he went it's going pretty good <laughs> there you must have some magical memories from that era um, yeah, well, that's what the show is really about. The show is about memories and stories that the audiences um, uh, get a unique, I think, kind of look into who I've been with and, and and how I feel about things. It's also a lot of you know current uh, topics to talk about. Um, but the show is sort of a living documentary. A lot of film clips, um, some really funny, some. A uh, uh, little poignant at times uh, about my relationship with Muhammad Ali and mm. and Robin and um, mm. it's 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 got a full it's a full plate. 
Uh, that's a show right there. Do you touch on current stuff at all? Do you go where the politics of the day is going today, or do you try to stay away I from do, that? I do, but it's not, my, it's not my emphasis. But I've found, as we've traveled our country, um, <clears throat> the shifting feelings about what we're all going through, how, um, you know, what we're experiencing, and this adjustment to this new relationship is uh, uh, fraught with both humor and peril. So if you can find a way to talk about it without condemning, without, but making your points, um, then you're onto something. And, and um, there's a little section that I do about what's happening that's been a, uh, a really great success on the show. Um, uh, so I've never really been a political comic because I, I, others do it better, um, but I weave it uh, into one little particular section of the show that seems to uh, be enough of it, and the audiences have really loved it. What is the response? Can you, can you feel that they're into it? Can you feel that it's a different time? Oh, for sure, um, Scott. We, we all can. Um, the earth has shifted um, with this first 75 days, so um, we've got a you know, all understand where we are in this world and try to, you know, do the best we can with it. And, and for the humorists, it's to make a point and poke fun at it in the, in the right kind of tone. Um, and for journalists to write about it, for, for people to vote about it. So um, that's where, and not everybody agrees with you. And that's sort of the beauty of, of a democracy. Um, so, but as a comedian and the, as the, the only one talking, at the time, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a big responsibility to to get it right for for yourself and you know and say what you feel. What do you like to do in your spare time? You must be pretty excited. Baseball season's beginning. Yeah, uh, well, I was until our opening day with the Yankees, <laughs> uh, but it's a long season. Yeah, I'm. I am right now. This is one of the best times. Um, all at once, you have. Well, we just finished the Final Four, which is yeah. probably the best sporting event on television for a month. Uh, March Madness in the States is phenomenal. Um, and now baseball season and the basketball playoffs start. So, I'm, you know, I've been rooting for the Clippers for 27 years or something. And um, we're going into the playoffs at the end of next week. And um, hopefully um, we'll have a better run than we've had in the last couple of years. So that's what I do. I mean, I love to go to basketball games, and I... I, I'd love to get to Yankee Stadium as much as I can. Um, and personally, I loved um, becoming a uh, pretty good golfer and, uh, and trying to... Uh, when did you take golf up? Um, when it was too hard to get 18 guys together to play baseball. <laughs> golf oh. I can do by myself. When you're on the road, I don't even know 18 people. Um, to oh, try to man. get a game going. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's been a new... Um, and I how, guess the last eight and, to ten years. And how are you finding that? Are you a serious golfer? Are you one of those guys that it's all etiquette? It's all about this, that, and the other? And uh, are you I just there try to have time? fun and try to get better. And, and I can't play as much as I, I need to play to get good. And golf is a game you need to play all the time to get good, I think. And, and, but uh, if I can enjoy myself and get, uh, get out, get out on, a, on a course for a couple hours, even on the road, I'll bring my clubs and... and um, and it's a it's a beautiful sport. It's a sometimes it doesn't feel like a sport. But, uh, <laughs> you, know. 
You know what I like about it? You can pee in the woods. They... Okay. Maybe that's truly a Canadian perspective, Billy, but you know, no, 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 it's not we, we've enough. got a little cabin cottage mentality up here. I have peed in the woods with some very famous people. <laughs> I won't even ask. Well, yeah, I will. Can you share any of that with us? Nah, never mind. Uh, no, no, she, she'd be very <laughs> uh Billy Crystal performing Falls View Casino, April 12th and 13th, along with Bonnie Hunt. This sounds like it's an amazing show. Billy, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks. Great talking to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked yesterday about cap and trade, and of course, uh, uh, yesterday was the deadline to uh, uh, purchase these credits. And we were wondering, is it going to be a success? Is it not going to be a success? And it turns out, uh, I'm not sure whether it is a success, but if it being sold out is a success, then it is. Uh, because the current allowances have been sold out in Ontario's first cap-and-trade auction. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, Scott. Ian, I know you don't know anything about this, but you got to keep your eyes peeled for the story on Innisfil and them using Uber as transit. You know, at a a time when, you know, most cities don't want anything to do with Uber and the politicians and the mayors are fighting, they're looking at this as a transit solution because they can't afford, it's a large area, rural over, you know, spread out, so they can't really afford transit, you know, to have one bus going over a designated route. So they're cutting a deal with Uber to pay for some of the fee to subsidize when you get an Uber ride to go in and around the town. Like totally out of the box thinking, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Who knew? Maybe this is the solution everyone's been looking for. It could be. Uh, I mean, Uber is a very innovative company, and uh, municipalities are not known in Canada or the states uh, for being at the cutting edge of innovativeness. At least I don't think most people would consider them to be. They tend to be very staid, and uh, they and because they often are heavily unionized, they tend to be very, uh, if you will, predictable. That is to say, you know, uh, snow removal should be done by uh, uh, unionized uh, contractors and garbage collection and so forth. It is changing those those uh, assumptions uh, partly because of the, um, the the exploding demands on municipalities that all the big mayors are talking about. You know, they're saying they can't afford the infrastructure because there's so many different demands on the uh, mayors and councils. So maybe this is the sort of thing they're going to have to start looking at is more innovative, out-of-the-box solutions brought with, in partnership with the private sector. I thought it was amusing. I thought, who would have thunk that, you know, everybody's talking about transit, cabs, this, that, and the other, that this may actually be a solution as opposed to just a pain in the rear end for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. And well, I, I'm, I've been a fan of Uber from the very beginning uh, because I really do believe in that great um, uh, capitalist uh, thinker. His name was Mao Zedong. <laughs> and he used to say, let a thousand flowers bloom. So I always thought that Mao was maybe a hidden closet uh, capitalist. And uh, there's nothing wrong with trying different solutions in uh, uh, to address our problems, whether it be mass transit or what have you. So maybe this, is, uh, this will uh, lead to something. All right, let's move on. Talk about cap and trade. Yesterday was the deadline, uh, I guess, and, and uh, although I guess the, they're now saying a March 22nd auction. I'm not sure. Was there, was there significance to the deadline yesterday? No, I believe they were announcing it yesterday. That, they were announcing it yesterday, but it actually had happened on March 22nd. Brings in $472 million. Uh, do we, is this considered a success, Ian? I think they will certainly uh, trumpet it as a success. 
Uh, I mean, you know, that's uh, that's a half a billion dollars. Uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, I don't think I think it's too soon to say whether it's going to uh, ultimately work. Uh, and I don't mean that to be professionally pessimistic. Uh, the uh, uh, European system initially seemed to be working, and then after it ran into a lot of problems. They're going to be doing successive rounds. It depends on what the permits uh, trade for uh, in the open marketplace. Uh, it depends on how many uh, free allowances they're going to give to uh, to help out um, uh, industries. But it is a promising first step from the for the government's point of view. That is, they can say, look, we raised a half a billion dollars that we didn't have before. That we can invest in green infrastructure, mass transit, and so forth. So I think that they will uh, declare victory on this, and um, I certainly understand that they will. Uh, although I think it's too soon to say uh, and comment on the long-term success of cap and trade in Ontario. Who purchased these credits? I haven't I haven't seen the industries, but I'm guessing that they're going to be industries. Uh, there are going to be, you know, gas utilities like Enbridge, um, airports, uh, railroads, uh, oil, oil and gas companies. That's a no-brainer. Uh, you know, companies like uh, Suncor and uh, Shell. So I think it's going to be those ener- those industries that are producing a lot of GHG. I mean, you don't need these credits if if you're a, a an organization that doesn't produce. You know, your service company, you're a broadcast station like yours. I cannot. I cannot imagine that your company is a large generator of GHG, so you're not going to need these credits. But I think that if those those companies, those um, those organizations that are uh, that are producing a lot of GHG, are going to need those uh, credits. Does this mean those companies see the value in this system? Well, I would put it slightly differently. Um, the government, any government, uh, is. Uh, a monopoly provider, if I can call it that. That is to say, if you're in a jurisdiction called the Ontario, there aren't multiple governments of Ontario, unlike the private sector, where you can have multiple companies competing against each other. Within a given jurisdiction, there's only one government. So there's only one government of the United States, there's only one government of Canada, and there's one government of Ontario, and so forth. So what I'm where I'm going with this is they're the only game in town. If you are a business in Ontario... It does no good to say, I don't like the system, I don't think it's effective, I don't think it's the best, the ideal system. You have to bow down and uh, uh, with the, to, the, to the edict, the law of the land, uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the rules imposed on you by the government of that jurisdiction. And the government of Ontario has made it very clear it's going down that road. So companies will have to comply uh, in the province of Ontario. So they have no choice and you might as well buy in now when the rates are lower? Exactly. <laughs> That's hmm. what I was suggesting. Stockpile yeah. your credits. <laughs> In case you need them later. Uh, that's right. And uh, so I, I think that they're, they're just recognizing the writing on the wall. I think there's an increasing, uh, even though I've been very critical in, in our conversations, for example, and, and in my conversations with other people, I've been critical of carbon tax and cap and trade uh, because I, don't, I think it, there's a lot of problems with it. But regardless of what I think, it doesn't matter. I think there is a consensus that we are going down that road, either cap and trade or carbon tax in the various provinces in Canada. And it's likely, I've long believed that once we implement it and it's generating revenue, it'll be almost impossible for any government to get rid of it because governments generally don't like to give up cash flow called tax revenues because that gives them the ability to spend that money on goodies that they use to get reelected.
Hmm. And so something, once it gets built in, baked in, and is starting to throw off that kind of money, that's going to be a powerful incentive for any uh, future government to keep it because they're going to say, hey, look, I mean, half a billion dollars, if they generate $2 billion a year, as the Ontario government is suggesting, that's $2 billion more than they've got now that they can spend. Are you surprised they sold out? Did you see this coming at all? Um, without looking into the mechanics or the you know the, the technical details, I thought that it was going to be successful because I assumed that the I made the assumption, the explicit assumption, that the people in the ministry that designed it very deliberately anticipated and said, "Look, we don't want to have our first auction be deemed or perceived to be a failure. Yeah. So let's make sure we design it in such a way that it will be successful uh, to generate momentum and." support for the system. And so I, I just assumed that they were, because there's smart people in the finance ministry and the environment ministry and these various ministries in both Ontario, uh, Toronto and the Ontario government and in the federal government. And I'm sure they put their best minds to work and the people they have in the bureaucracy. I don't believe it was the politicians that designed it. It was the, the really clever technocrats and public service bureaucrats around them. And uh, they went to work and they studied the European system. They studied the Quebec system, the California system. And I'm sure that they took the lessons from those systems and made sure that it was built or designed and built in such a way that it was going to succeed. Uh, Environment Minister Glenn Murray said the participation rate, whether it's 100% or 20% or 50 or 60, is not the success of the market. He said the success of the market is really based on our ability to reduce greenhouse gases. We will not expect to get 100% all of the time. Will this reduce greenhouse gases? I am very skeptical, and I'll explain why. Uh, and it's not just me being personally skeptical. I've looked at the forecasts going out the next 20 to 30 years of some of the most important organizations in the world dealing with forecasts of future energy growth and energy demand, starting with the International Energy Agency in Paris, which is an international body that's part of that constellation of United Nations organizations like WHO and FAO and so forth. In other words, this isn't a company. It's not a private company. It's an international body like the IMF or the OECD. And they've uh, predicted that we're going to be mostly dependent on fossil fuels through to 2050 around the world. And the U.S. Department of Energy has made a similar forecast. So has the Canadian Department of Energy uh, and Natural Resources Canada. Uh, so has Exxon and BP and Royal Dutch Shell, the three largest oil and gas companies on the planet Earth. So all of these experts in all of these different countries and companies and international bodies are saying that we're going to be principally, they're not saying we're just going to use little tiny amounts, that we're going to, the majority of our, 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 our energy is going to come from fossil fuels uh, from now until 2050. So if that's the case, what's going to happen? Well, this is going to be a tax that works its way into the system that is going to generate tax for sure, revenues for sure. Governments will spend it, but they won't set it at such a level that it's going to crash or destroy the economy. They, they, they're not that foolish. So it will be set high enough to generate money that they can declare a success, and it will generate real money that they can really spend on green activities, retrofitting buildings and, you know, uh, subsidies for electronic car, electric cars and so on and so forth. But will it, at the end of the day, in three or five or seven or ten years, cause us to go from 80 percent, where in most Western countries, Canada is no exception, 80 percent of the totality of our energy comes from fossil fuels, principally oil and natural gas. Do I believe that in three, five, or seven, or ten years, we'll have dropped from 80% down to, let's say, five, or ten, or 15, or 20, or 30, or 40%? 
nobody, no serious analyst in these agencies is predicting that. They're predicting we're going to continue to be mostly dependent on fossil fuels. So therefore, if we define that as the objective, that it is to significantly reduce us from 80% use down to something much, much lower, I do not believe that that's going to happen. And a whole bunch of other people in these international bodies and organizations likewise do not believe that's going to happen. So what happens post-2050? Will we not need investment in these new technologies to take us to the next phase beyond that? Well, well, the reason that they use 2050, it's my understanding, and I've read these different reports. And by the way, Bill Gates, has a the, the, who's doing a huge amount of his investing of his own money in alternatives, principally uh, battery technology breakthrough, so we can store the energy from windmills and solar and panels, solar panels, because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun does not always shine. So you got to, we need a breakthrough, and we haven't had a breakthrough, a major, major breakthrough in battery storage for over 100 years. And by, I mean, uh, by a major breakthrough, I'm not talking incremental, you know, where each year the batteries can last a little bit longer. We're talking major breakthrough, quantum breakthrough. And, and so Bill Gates and others have argued that until we have a major breakthrough in battery storage to store the energy, of course the sun is out there, of course the wind is out there, but we are not able to store it in large quantities. That's why Ontario Hydro, when they have a surplus, they have to dump it uh, to the state at, at a loss because they cannot store it. We need It's a problem of physics and engineering. It's not bad people like Ian Lee saying, let's go plunder and pillage the environment. We use natural gas and oil because they're extraordinarily efficient and effective fuels at moving cars and heating homes and factories and office buildings. Yes, there are alternatives. We're working on them, but it is considered by many of these forecasters that I read, it's going to take another 20 to 30 years before these breakthroughs are made in terms of the engineering and the physics and then commercialized. It's going to take that long. And so people are using Bill Gates is using 2050 as his break point, and, and so are these other agencies I've already quoted to you. So the belief is that, the, that we are in a transition in the next 20, 30 years, we the world, not we the royal we, that the world is in transition from a a fossil fuel carbon world to a non-fossil fuel world. But it's not going to happen like the environmentalists will tell us or Glenn Murray and people like that tell us, where they project or suggest or infer or create the belief that, you know, this is just around the corner, so to speak. We're just got to roll out some few programs here and pop in a carbon tax there and Focus, focus, abracadabra, and we're all going to be driving and using alternative fuels uh, in just, just in, in the very near future. There's no serious forecaster that believes that. The politicians are telling us that. The environmentalists are telling us that. But the people who are the engineering experts, the, the experts in physics and the energy, the, the physics of energy production are not telling us that. So there's a big gap or a gulf between the experts. And I mean by that people that are engineers and physicists that are doing research on alternatives versus the people, the proselytizers, the people that are selling us on this brave new world that they claim is imminent or believe is imminent. There's that great big ga- gap or gulf, I should say, between them. And I think it's going to happen, Scott. I'm not a pessimist. I just don't think it's going to happen tomorrow morning or in five years from now or seven years from now just because they introduced a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade program. You see, you need the technolo- technological breakthrough. And just because you wave your arms and shout and scream and say the world's coming to an end and impose the carbon tax 
doesn't produce the intellectual breakthrough that we need from physicists and engineers and the various people working on things like battery storage. Bill Gates is putting hundreds of millions of his own dollars into two professors at MIT who are, have large research teams trying to achieve a breakthrough, an intellectual breakthrough in physics and engineering in the long-term massive storage of, of energy. And this just takes time. And, and that's, that's the problem, and that's why I don't believe it's going to happen tomorrow morning. I do believe we will achieve that breakthrough, but it's going to take longer than the than the uh, people doing the, sa- the the salesmanship are telling us. Can we be sure? Can Canadians be sure this money is going to where it's supposed to be going, and not just into general coffers the way uh, it seems to be happening in Ontario with Kathleen Wynne's plan? Yeah, I mean, in any uh, and I've studied. Uh, I did my PhD was uh, one of the issues I focused. One of the themes I was studying was budgeting uh, in democracies, and I mean by that parliamentary democracies: UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And uh, we have, and the American system is quite similar, even though it's a congressional system. So every one of these countries have what is essentially called a consolidated revenue fund. That is to say, all the monies from all the different taxes flow into one point. And at the federal level, it flows into a thing. It's actually called the Consolidated Revenue Fund, administered by the Department of Finance, Finance Canada. Whether it's GST revenues or duties you pay at the border coming back to Canada, or it's excise taxes on gasoline, or it's income taxes, corporate or personal, they all flow into one pot. And the same thing happens provincially. And so they all get mixed up together and slooshed around into a gigantic pudding, I suppose you could say. And then out of that giant fund or slush fund, or what you want to call it, consolidated revenue fund, then the departments get their money. So the Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation and so forth. So all that money gets mixed up, and it's all, all dollars are interchangeable. One dollar is the same as another dollar is the same as another dollar. So to answer your question, it really depends on what the on government of the day does in terms of the budget that they introduce in the legislature once a year, because that spells out their spending priorities. I have been very critical of this government, but I will say I, I think that they – will probably be uh, honor their commitment where they have said they're going to spend these monies completely on green initiatives, mass transit, uh, and that sort of thing. I, I don't doubt it. I'm not suggesting that's the most effective way to do it, but I think that they will spend this money. It'll give them more money to spend on their various green initiatives. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.